My friends, welcome to this year's wrap-up for 2018, where we're going to cover off the top golden nuggets, the top 12 golden nuggets from 2018. Now, these are my opinion. You might have different golden nuggets, and that's fair. You might not agree with my selections. If you don't agree with my selections, let me know. If you feel like I left something out, let me know. Hit me up on social media. Let me know on, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Doesn't matter. Let me know if I missed a golden nugget. I just want to hear your perspective. But these were my top 12. And we have a heck of a lot to cover off. So let's kick right into this one with golden nugget number 12 from 2018, where we talked to my friend John Izzo, episode 125, where we're talking about the book, The Five Thieves of Happiness. And this thief in particular, we're talking about comfort yeah people go now john and ryan you have gone too far now i can't even be comfortable right comfort is the thief (laughs) well here's what i mean by comfort comfort is this part of us that wants to stay stuck in whatever routine that we're in now there's two really interesting sides around this thief of comfort the first is that we know that the human brain is hardwired for newness. People often say we resist, the human beings resist change, but it turns out every time you meet a new person, have a new experience, see a new city, uh, your brain gives you a shot of happy chemicals, dopamine and, and other things, kind of almost like an internal drug uh, that brings you happiness. So, in fact, we are actually hardwired to enjoy change, to enjoy new experiences, even though we resist the breaking up of habits. So part of the, 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 the comfort robs us of happiness when we, when we wind up just staying in a routine that isn't bringing us happiness, but, but it's just comfortable. So we stay there. So instead of having new experiences. But the other way is often there's a pattern in our life that we get into that maybe worked for us at one time in our life, but now we need to let it go. Mm-hmm. And two examples I use in the book. Uh, is uh, uh, a friend of mine who had a father who had mental illness. Mm. And it was very hard because imagine you're a young child, now you have to take care of your father of when you, you, it's supposed to be the other way around, right? And by the way, he's a great guy, a gifted physician. Uh, but now whenever somebody needs him too much, a friend or something, he kind of turns the knob off, right? Mm. Because he's very sensitive to people needing too much from him. But the interesting thing is that worked for him as a, as a young person because his father shouldn't have needed all that stuff from him, right? He, he needs his father to be there for him. But now that pattern is translated into other people in his life now, and it becomes a source of unhappiness. It doesn't work anymore. And another example is that person who grew up in a home where fighting led to really bad right. things. Mm-hmm. So they began to believe that fighting was bad, whereas we know that in you know, having healthy disagreements and working them through in a relationship is actually a source of marital success, That's not right. failure. And so every time there's a disagreement, they think the world is going to fall apart. But that pattern is no longer true. So it's really, Ryan, about challenging the different patterns in our life mm-hmm. that have kind of led us to unhappiness, uh, maybe worked for us at one time but they don't work for us anymore. This is the hardest one to understand in a podcast, but it's a really important one, actually, for many people. And again, for those of you who want to go back and listen to that episode, that's episode 125. Again, thank you so much to John Izzo for coming on the show. John came on the show twice this year. It was a true pleasure having him on. 
Now for Golden Nugget number 11, we have one of my favorite guests, Patrick Lencioni. We had Pat on twice. We had him talking about the five dysfunctions of a team. We also had him talking about the ideal team player. This Golden Nugget in particular comes from episode 118, the five dysfunctions of a team, where we talk about the importance of conflict. Because far too often we're scared to have conflict in the boardroom. We're scared to have conflict in our families, with our friends. And we talk about conflict as something positive, not negative. There's far too little conflict in most organizations. Now, understand this, though. If there's not trust, if people are not vulnerable with each other, conflict is not a good thing. Hmm. Because then, then you're saying things and you know that that person is not going to respond honest. They're not going to admit when they're wrong. They're not going to take it well. That's why you have to start with trust. When people are vulnerable, then conflict becomes nothing but the pursuit of truth or the best possible answer. Think about it. I'm not arguing with you because I want to win, because I'm vulnerable enough to admit if I'm wrong. I'm arguing with you because I, st- I think my idea is the right one, and I don't want to let down our customers or our employees or the rest of the organization. Nice. So it's, it's trust that enables conflict. But even when there's trust, some people don't want to engage in conflict because they feel like, gosh, it seems like I'm being mean. I know that sounds crazy, but the idea of being, I, I, if I'm a team player, I shouldn't, I shouldn't argue with other people. <laughs> And it's just not the way it is. And we know this in our marriages. In the best marriages, Mm. people argue because they care about their family. And at the end of the argument, people go, okay, that was good. We made a better decision as a result of that. But we don't do it enough in our organizations because we're afraid that people are going to falsely accuse us of not being a team player. When in reality, challenging people around their ideas is necessary to be a great team player. Now, We do have to understand that conflict is going to look different from one culture to another. Every company, every culture, every family is going to be a little different. Mm -hmm. You go to Japan and you act like an Italian and they're going to, (laughs) they're going to throw you out of the room. You know, I'm Italian and Irish, you know, American. And, and so in Japan, you know, if you disagree with somebody really strongly, you nod your head and you say, yes, yes. And then you suck through your teeth. Hmm. That's how you know somebody in Japan is really disagreeing with you. Interesting. Of course, in Italy, they're going to give you a, a hand signal <laughs> that's going right, to look right. like something else. And that just means, hey, I don't think this is the greatest idea. And I love, and be, because you're Canadian, I love when I talk to Canadians because they're all like, why do you call it conflict? Can't we just call it constructive disagreement? And I'm like, no, you Canadians, it's conflict. <laughs> Embrace it. We're so nice. <laughs> because, you know, they're so nice. Yeah. And it's okay to be nice. It's okay to be nice, whether you're Japanese, Italian, Canadian. The question is this. Are people on your team holding back? They cannot do that. Mm-hmm. If there's something that's, that's important at all, people have to be willing to disagree. They have to disagree around the issue or the idea. And when they don't, and this is what I always tell people to convince them, Ryan, when they don't disagree with their colleagues around an idea or an issue and they, put, they, they pack it away someplace, it will inevitably ferment into conflict around the person. When we don't have conflict around issues, it becomes later conflict around a person, and that's what destroys teams and really hurts them. Because I can go back in my mind right now and think of examples where, you know, a person was made to be, you know, the scapegoat. Oh, this person was the one that screwed it up. And why was it? We didn't have enough conflict on the team. There was enough conflict around certain issues, certain debates, and it was just very laissez-faire kind of attitude where we're just going to let this one go through and see what happens. And if it failed, it was right. that person's fault. It was that person's fault. They screwed it up. It's like, hold on a second. No, it wasn't my fault. We were fault. all there. Yeah. We were all at that meeting, 
And nobody ever goes, man, I'm really glad we didn't have conflict. It didn't go well, but it's better than having a difficult conversation <laughs> at, the, at the meeting when we planned this. And by the way, Ryan, the process of building trust, you talk about things like how'd you grow up and what's your personality and how does God wire you differently than me? So you realize some people are more geared toward you know, animated conflict, some people aren't, and you find your level as a team. And I'll realize, oh, I have a person on my team who never saw their parents argue. They're an ISFJ. And I'll go, that's a Myers-Briggs term. Mm -hmm. And I'll think, okay, I need to draw them out. I can't expect them to jump up on the desk and scream at me when they disagree. So I know that, and we trust each other, and we get each other, and I can say, okay, Tracy, tell me what you think, because I know you probably don't want to yell at me about this, (laughs) but you might. And they're like, okay, Pat, I will. So the trust-building process enables us to engage in better conflict. I love that golden nugget. It's so important. The importance of conflict to make better decisions, to make stronger companies, to build better relationships. But again, don't forget, if you want to have conflict, constructive conflict, positive conflict, you need to have trust at the base. So thank you so much to Pat Lencioni for coming on the show twice in 2018, talking about two of his books. And in 2019, maybe I got to get him back on just because I love talking to the man so much. So thank you so much to Pat for coming on the show in 2018. Now, for golden nugget number 10 for 2018, we're going to go all the way back to episode 101. We're going to talk about 18 minutes with Peter Bregman. And in this golden nugget, we talk about the six box to do strategy. Yeah, so I have a six box to do list. And and the idea is I take a piece of paper and I break it up into six boxes. And, you know, you could do one more box or one less box. Mm -hmm. But I identify at the beginning of the year five areas of focus. Right? These are the five areas that I most want to spend my time on for the year, right? This is where these aren't goals mm-hmm. necessarily, but they are, you know, like, I, like I already identified three of them, right? One of them is, is, you know, selling and, and really getting our work out there in the world. Mm-hmm. A second is developing an amazing team that's capable of delivering and that's, you know, that's engaged and passionate. And, and the third is, uh, systems that work incredibly efficiently so that we can scale really powerfully and productively. Nice. Um, I- I'll tell you that a, a fourth of that, of my five boxes, is my new book that's coming out, right? Which mm. is going to take a lot of energy and a lot of focus, and that's mm. an area of focus, to really get it out there. And then for me, sometimes I do it where I have personal and, and organizational, but for me, my my fifth box has to do with myself, my health, my fitness, my family, like, am I, am I, you know, am I supporting the container Hmm. that gets all of this stuff done, right? Those are my five boxes. That's where I want to spend 95% of my time. Hmm. The sixth, and I literally draw a line in the middle of the page and then two lines across the page. So it's Hmm. like an extended tic-tac-toe board. Okay. Uh, So I've divided a page into six boxes. My sixth box is what I call the other 5%. Right. The other 5% has to do with everything that you can't avoid that you have to do that doesn't fit into one of those six boxes. You know, change the oil. Like, mm. uh, um, you know, I don't know what else. Buy running sneakers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, when I first started keeping a six-box to-do list, and the idea is everything you need to do needs to fit into one of those boxes. When I first started keeping six boxes, list, the first five boxes were virtually empty, and the sixth box was two pages long. Interesting. Because wow. we would rather work on things that are easy and aren't identity issues. You know, if I don't get work done on my book, then 
then, you know, that represents uh, a real challenge. Like if my book is a failure, if my book, so I, 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 it's scary to do all of that work. Like it's scary sure. enough that I'd rather go buy, bunny, buy running sneakers and check off my oil, mm-hmm. right? I'll change my oil and check that off the list because those things are easy to check off the list. I know I could do it. I'll feel accomplished. But it's why so many of us finish an entire day having worked nonstop very, very hard mm-hmm. and yet not having achieved our most important work, wow. right? Because our most important work is scary yeah. and failure in it represents, you know, a, a, a deep issues of identity and value and and, and I, I don't know, it's a lot to do and it's challenging and we tend to get distracted and not go back to our most challenging work. And so I'd rather buy running sneakers. Yeah, no kidding. And, and so, so, I, so after a couple of days of keeping a six box to-do list, everything changed. Because I was like, I'm not moving forward in the things that are most important to me. So now about it today, I've got to look at my six boxes and I've got to say, what goes into the category of selling? What goes into the category of mm you know, taking care of the, the workers that we have, the staff, the brilliant coaches, the people who are going to be delivering everything. What goes into creating systems? What goes into taking care of myself? What goes into my book? That's a great and, tool. And by the way, it's not done there. It's not done yet. But that's a very, very important first step. And then you start to get rid of stuff that's in the other 5%. You want to spend 95% of your time focused on those five areas. Now, that's such an important takeaway, especially at this point of the year. Again, there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. Everybody wants to knock people who create New Year's resolutions. Don't knock the resolution. Knock your non-commitment to your resolution. That's what you should be hating on. This is such a great takeaway, and I know a lot of you continue to use your six-box to-do list because you told me that you do. And I myself use my six-box to-do list. So I'm going to continue using it into 2019 because it helps me focus. I want to get more done. If I want to feel more accomplished, I want to make more progress, I got to make focus. And the best way for me to focus, it's a great tool, the six box to-do list. So thank you so much to Peter. Actually, thank Peter for coming on the show a little later because we have Peter coming on again for another golden nugget. He makes the top 10 for the golden nuggets. So we'll talk about that one in a little bit. But the next golden nugget we have coming up, this one's golden nugget number nine for the year. And it comes from episode 113, Getting Things Done with David Allen. And I love this golden nugget because far too many of us, we just like to hold information in our head. And we say, no, we never forget stuff. I have a great memory. Listen, listen, I get it. You got a great memory, but you're doing yourself a disservice. So in this golden nugget, David Allen talks about the importance of getting stuff out of your brain and capturing it on paper. Well, your brain's actually evolved over however many millennia that, that our brains evolved to do something very brilliantly to keep you alive, basically, in the jungle or the savanna or in the desert. And that is using long-term uh, memory and pattern recognition. Hmm. So you walk out and you say, well, that's a tiger coming toward me, or that's a, there's a thunderstorm over there, or there are berries in that bush, or there's a snake over there while my kid's crying. And your brain does that brilliantly. It does it in the present tense. That's what everybody's doing right now. Uh, so, so the brain is brilliant at that. Uh, however, you go to the store for lemons and you come back with six things and no lemons <laughs> what happened <laughs> you know what happened was you tried to use your brain as your office and your your brain is a crappy office you want to say cut the crap it's just called hey guys get out of your head would you please your head is a terrible place as a matter of fact the new cognitive science research has basically validated that the number of things you can keep just in your head 
and remember and remind yourself about them appropriately and understand the relationships between them appropriately is number four. That's it. Hmm. As soon as you add a fifth or a sixth thing that your mind is trying to do, you'll be driven by latest advice. Your brain is going to start to become a crappy office, and your, your, your thinking, your cognitive process is going to be like a pinball in a bad pinball machine. <laughs> And, you know, and you just need to stop doing that. It's just, it's a, it's very subtle, but it's a mechanical thing. So your brain did not evolve to remember, remind, prioritize, or understand relationships, you know, between more than about four things. So the whole idea there is build the external brain. Mm. So that's a lot of, a lot of what my methodology, at least, at least the primary part of the methodology is, is get this stuff out of your head. Our brains are best used for processing and thinking, not for holding on to information. Such an important point, but yet so many of you out there, like I know so many of you are listening, my, my sales guys and gals out there, my marketing guys and gals, my product development guys and gals, all you people that I coach, so many of you take pride in your ability to hold on to information. Listen, don't hold on to information. I tell you this all the time. Write it down. Make it prisoner on paper and free up your mind to think, to process. Make it lighter on yourself. It's so much easier that way. But this was such a great takeaway, and I always remember this. When I find myself getting overwhelmed, it's because I have too much in my brain and I need to get it down on paper. Make that a priority in 2019. So thank you so much to David Allen for coming on the podcast. It's a true pleasure having him on. The man is so busy and he's such a legend in this industry when it comes to productivity. So have him on the show. It was such an honor. Thank you so much, David. Now, golden nugget number eight for 2018 comes from Dan Pink in episode 100, where we talk about his new book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. In this Golden Nugget, Dan and I talk about the importance of doing specific tasks, specific parts of the day. So we break the day down into three parts. Let's hear what those three parts are. Yeah, though that's, that's an absolutely key point. So what, what the research shows is that we tend to move through the day in three stages. There's a peak, a trough, and a rebound. Now, most of us move through the day in that order. So peak in the morning, trough in the early afternoon, and then a rebound late afternoon and, and early evening. And what the research shows is that we're better at certain types of tasks, just as you say, Ryan, certain types of tasks at different kinds of times of day. So, um, so let's take the peak, which, again, for most of us is, is the morning. For, for people who are night owls, it goes in the reverse order, so their peak is, toward the, is much later in the day. But in our peak, we're better at doing analytic work. Now, what is analytic work? It, analytic work is work that requires vigilance focus, heads down, locked in, eliminate distractions. You're writing a legal brief. You're, or you're auditing a financial statement. You are bashing out some important lines of code. Um, for that kind of, we do that work better in our peak because we're more vigilant. We can keep out distractions. Now, during the trough, which for all, almost all of us is the early afternoon, the trough isn't good for very much. Uh, our performance, our mood dips considerably. So in that period, we're better off doing our administrative work answering routine emails or filing or doing all the kind of garbage that seems to collect in a day. The third stage, uh, the recovery period, is actually a really interesting period because our mood is higher than during the trough, but we're less vigilant than during the peak. And that combination is actually really interesting. Um, it, uh, that sort of Letting in a few distractions, which we do during the recovery, is actually pretty good for creative work. You don't want to be too hyper-focused to do brainstorming or creative work, you end up eliminating things you know, that you should actually be considering. So we're better off doing what are called insight tasks, kinds of creative work, later in the day. And what 
what this mountain of research has found is that if we're just a little bit more intentional about moving the right task to the right time, we can do better. Time of day explains about 20% of the variance in how human beings perform on cognitive tasks, the kinds of things that we do on the job. And so, you know, 20% doesn't mean the timing is everything, but it means it's a really big thing. And, and all of us can get a little extra advantage if we simply are more intentional about these when questions. Such a great takeaway, especially from the perspective of productivity, understanding what tasks make more sense throughout the day. Now, I understand this might not work for everybody. It works for me and it might work for you. So something to keep in mind. Thank you so much to Dan for coming on the show in 2018. And you know what? I got to get Dan back on the show in 2019 because he got so many other books and he's such a great guest, great energy. We have great chemistry and uh, we'll see what 2019 brings. Any case, now we move on to golden nugget number seven for 2018. And this one comes from Peter Bregman. Again, we're talking about his other book, Leading with Emotional Courage. And this one in particular, man, I love this one. I love this one because so many of you out there take pride in your perfectionism. Listen, it has nothing to do with perfectionism. The world does not reward perfectionism. The world rewards productivity. If you think about what allows us to move forward in the world, or you can think about like what the world rewards. The world rewards productivity, not perfection, right? So if, I, if I'm going to put out a ton of writing, over time, I'm going to hit that perfection. Mm -hmm. But if I work for six months on the perfect blog post to make it just right, to have all of the elements, First of all, there's a great chance I'm going to miss the mark. Mm. And second of all, I'm going to have one blog post that some people will see. <laughs> As opposed to if I write a blog post you know, every week or even every day, I'm going to have 50 or 100 blog posts. That's right. And so and in, the, in the process of doing all of that work, right, in the process of, of doing those 50 or 100 blog posts, my 101st blog post is going to be way better right. than the one blog post that I've like, spent six months to craft. So when we have super high expectations, what happens is we get paralyzed. We stop ourselves from acting because nothing's quite good enough. Everything has to be perfect. And there's a lot of really interesting research about being satisfied, like enoughness, hmm. right? And you, you, you know, I, I had to learn this as a parent. Like, you know, you can't be the perfect parent. I mean, it's just impossible. So you have to settle for good enough. Hmm. And it turns out good enough parenting is actually pretty good. But if you're too afraid to be only a good enough parent, then you get stricter and mm -hmm. then you have really high expectations of your children and then they rebel and et cetera, and it all backfires. Just the same way that sort of pursuing perfection in, in a piece of work does. And I really learned this when I was trying to buy a bicycle and I was trying to buy a bicycle and I talked about this in the book and I got really frozen around the color, mm -hmm. which is insane. Like, it's just, you know, in the end, how much does it actually matter? But I got, I perseverated and I went back and forth and, 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 it, and it sucked up so much time mm -hmm. and so much energy and so much focus. And it really, you know, it, it, it really came to me that like, it's just like, yeah, it matters only so much. That's right. And so let it matter enough, but not too much. Have high enough expectations. But if your expectations are too high, then everything else sort of crumples around it. Right. That's exactly right. And this comparison to Steve Jobs is so interesting, right, Ryan? Because we hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of what I want to say is 
you know, I'm not Steve Jobs. And, you know, anyone <laughs> listening, by definition, is not Steve Jobs. That's right. And there's a lot of different things that you can emulate around great people who've been successful. But there are a billion variables that went into making them successful. Mm-hmm. And if we pull out the one that we think is the most crystallized one without all of the others, it's like, you know, taking vitamin A instead of eating a carrot. Yes. Like, it's just too complex. That's it's right. not going to do it for you. And so, like, I, I kind of want to say, let's stop modeling ourselves after people that we think are great, and let's try to be, you know, really successful, happy, balanced, hardworking, productive versions of ourselves. What a fantastic takeaway to start your 2019 with. Stop focusing on perfection and start focusing on productivity because the world doesn't care about your perfection. And you might say, hey, I have very high standards. That's cool. You can have high standards, but you got to do as Seth Godin says, and you got to ship more often. Stop trying to make everything perfect and start focusing on productivity. Get that podcast out there. Get that blog post out there. Start that campaign. Start making those phone calls. Stop trying to make everything perfect and start taking action for crying out loud. Ah, this stuff gets me hyped up. (laughs) Anyways, thank you so much to Peter Bregman for coming on the show twice in 2018. It was a true pleasure having him on. Now, I just mentioned Seth Godin a few seconds ago. And it just so happens that Seth Godin also makes up our number six top golden nugget from 2018, where I had Seth on episode 110 talking about linchpin. And this golden nugget in particular plays very well with the last golden nugget. Why do we wait so long to launch something? Why do we ship faster? Why are we focused so much on perfection? Well, it comes down to fear and understanding the lizard brain. Well, let's think about wild animals first. Uh, foxes and skunks and hornets and roaches, all wild animals are the same. And they're the same in the sense that their brain is instantly reacting to everything that's happening around it. Well, we have that same brain, but we've added stuff on the outside over time. We've evolved to have a narrative. We've evolved to have good taste. We've evolved to care about other things. But at the heart of our brain, right next to our spinal cord, is the amygdala, two almond-sized bits of brain that are responsible for getting the hell out of here. They're responsible for breaking into a cold sweat before you even realize why. And that lizard brain takes over when we least need it to. It takes over and gives us writer's block. It takes over and gets us uh, to get in a fight that gets us kicked off an airplane, and on and on and on. Understanding that we have this part of our brain helps us manage it. It helps us do the other work, the work we know is important. And Steve Pressfield has called these behaviors resistance. The resistance is the thing that gently pushes us to avoid things. The resistance, for example, does not want us to acknowledge that we have a lizard brain. The resistance is the one that says, I don't really feel like doing that extra bit of work. Why? Well, the reason you don't feel like it isn't that you're lazy. The reason you don't feel like it is that you're afraid. And the reason you're afraid is because you might get in trouble. And getting in trouble could cost you your job. And then you get kicked out of the village. And then you don't have any children. And then your genes aren't passed on. And then you die. And so we go from, oh, there's my boss's phone number on my phone to I'm going to die. And our brain can do that in two quick jumps. And so our job, if we seek to do this important work, 
is to acknowledge that we have a lizard brain, to realize that we cannot make it go away. We cannot make that noise in our head disappear. But what we can do is dance with it. Learning to dance with your fear, dancing with the lizard brain, that is so important because you're going to do stuff that scares you. You have to do stuff that scares you. If you're trying to make progress, if you're trying to grow in your life, you have to do stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. And it's about recognizing that fear. And as Seth says, learning to dance with it. It's so important. I love that takeaway. And it was such an honor having Seth on the show. So thank you so much to Seth. And I know in 2019, because we're already talking, we're going to get Seth back on the show. So now we break into our top five golden nuggets for 2018. And our first one, we have on Ian Robertson, where we had Ian talking about the stress test on episode 133. And this really got me into my fascination with building resilience and understanding the mind and the role the mind plays in our success, in our lives. And in this golden nugget in particular, I talked to Ian about understanding why the stresses of life, certain events crush some people, but for others, it lifts them up. Well, one of the differences is that what people attribute uh, their emotional response to. Some people, some people who see themselves as their emotions as being caused by something they've inherited, by something fixed in them, if they see themselves becoming very emotionally disturbed as a result of something tough happening to them, um, they can take that as evidence of, of something fundamental happening to them rather than as being a transitory state that can be changed. So there's a, first of all, there's a kind of fatalism that uh, people can have a fixed, what's called a fixed mindset. In Carl Dweck's words, a fixed mindset as opposed to a change mindset, a kind of a belief that the, the, if they're having a bad emotional time, this is caused by processes out of their control rather than in their control. Mm. So a, a, sec, a second thing is uh, related to that is, is a fear of fear and uh, uh, being f- depressed about depression where mm. you, 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 you run away from these symptoms of anxiety which are pervasive and unavoidable in life but you see them as a symptom of something rather than as a, a natural response to a tough situation. And if you, if you can reconceive of them as being a form of energy, if you like, that you can harness to try and cope with the situation as a challenge, if you like, rather than as a threat, then if you can get that challenge mindset, you will actually manage to uh, use these this, this non-specific energy, which is what, you see, the, the, the symptoms of, of anxiety are almost identical to the bodily symptoms of excitement hmm. and of anger. So these emotions are all the same. In, in terms of their physiological manifestation, and they only become the different emotions by how we, the labels we put on them, how we think about them. So by rethinking these emotions, and um, rather than feeling threatened and, and uh, fearful and anxious, regard that as, my goodness, I'm really roused here, I'm going to deal with this, this is a challenge, uh, this is a kind of strange excitement. If you can really manage to relabel your emotions in that way, actually, you're able to harness them. So uh, people who have never experienced any adversity in their lives, when they hit the inevitable tough times that hit people when they hit the labor market or mm-hmm. as young adults, they end up being less emotionally resilient because they've never had that experience of learning that these uh, symptoms pass, first of all, and secondly, are, are potentially controllable and they're part of life. They're not some symptom of a, a, a bigger disease that have to be avoided. 
first of all, I don't want to pretend that I can offer a, an easy uh, cure to someone who's suffering from chronic severe anxiety. Of course. Of course. That person, someone like that needs to see a, a professional person and, and not you know, listen to me as if mm -hmm. I'm talking about the normal range of, of stress and anxiety and where, where, where people who are you know, still not pleasant, but we're not talking about people with chronic lifelong anxiety. That's right. Um, and and one, one, one thing there is to, is to try and identify what it is is making you anxious because sometimes people don't actually pin down what is it actually that I'm anxious about. Mm -hmm. And then to define, um, try, try and reconceive of that situation, which at the moment they're thinking of as a threat. So, for instance, it might be a difficult relationship with a workmate or with a boss or with a partner. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, maybe, there's maybe anxiety about how to approach or how to deal with this. Um, and, and, you know, you can wake up early in the morning and be very worried, you know, what am I going to say? What's going to happen? So if you, if you can manage to, to say, well, I'm going to set myself a challenge of actually speaking to this person mm -hmm. in, in a way that where I don't get upset myself, I don't, I, I behave calmly and professionally. Or, or I, 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 so my challenge in this interaction becomes to conduct myself well and not necessarily to fix the whole situation or change that person's behavior. Mm -hmm. So you, you reframe what is the, the goal, if you like, of, of, of a particular situation. You define a goal for yourself mm -hmm. that involves you um, slightly stretching yourself in terms of how you conduct yourself, of how you behave. If you manage to do that and achieve that goal, that will give you a, a great surge of confidence mm -hmm. and will actually help gradually shape you into what we call the challenge mindset as opposed to the threat mindset. And when you're in a challenge mindset, you're much more likely to be able to remember past successes rather than past failures. And you'll also notice uh, positive signs in the world as opposed to negative ones. You're more likely to see us notice a smiling face hmm. rather than a disapproving face, for instance. So your whole your whole attention and memory system becomes biased to more positive things, and that in turn will lift your mood and your confidence more. So it's a question of setting small achievable goals for yourselves in the domain about which you're anxious that help uh, break through out of the threat mindset into the challenge mindset. Learning to build mental resilience, in my opinion, is one of the most important things that you can do. Because if you don't have mental resilience, you get crushed by the weight of the world. You get crushed by the stresses of the world. Man, it's just, they're, they're, you, you're not going to get anywhere if you continually get stressed out and bogged down by what comes to you in this world. And I'm telling you, this world can be tough sometimes, but man, can it be enjoyable. But it's more enjoyable if you have the resilience, if you have the strength to stand up to the tough times. But as we started talking about this idea of what crushes people and, and what makes people kind of use their stresses and propels them up higher, we talk about the importance of goals. And I've been talking about goals for all of 2018. You know this. And I talked about goals, which actually breaks us into the number four golden nugget for 2018, where I myself was on the show and I just did an episode, which was 122 success through a positive mental attitude and this one was by napoleon hill and of course napoleon hill is no longer with us today so that's why i decided to do this book justice and share it with all of you where we talked about building a positive mental attitude a pma 
I know so many of you loved this episode. This is actually one of the highest rated episodes of 2018. So I had to get it on here. Golden nugget number four. We talk about the importance of setting goals. No, I've said this time and time again, maybe to people within my inner circle. I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast before, but one of my most favorite strategies for avoiding anxiety, avoiding depression from setting in, is to set goals. Goals to me are one of the most powerful antidepressants that I have available to me. Because a goal unlocks emotions for me. It unlocks passion, determination, focus, enthusiasm. Things that I want to accomplish. Right When I set, you know, as Jim Collins says, a big, hairy, audacious goal, a BHAG. When I unlock a BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious goal, all of a sudden I get excited about it. Because I can see myself achieving that goal. It gives me something to work towards. I have purpose. I have meaning now in my life. Again, we talk about meaning and finding meaning in life. We think about that old podcast that we had many, many months ago with uh, Emily S. Fahani-Smith talking about finding meaning in one's life. To find meaning in one's life, one of her principles was finding purpose. Well, you find purpose by having a goal and striving towards achieving that. And Napoleon Hill, that smart son of a gun, he knew, he knew the importance of setting goals in your life as a way to avoid depression, as a way to give yourself focus. Right, Having that positive mental attitude, that PMA, that gives you solid grounding for success. But the thing here, though, that you must have, though, is determination. It's one thing to set a goal, right? Everybody sets goals. New Year's Eve. How many of you set goals on New Year's saying, New Year, new me, baby. I'm going after it this year. I'm getting in the gym. I'm changing my diet. I'm making more money. I'm going to get out of debt. And how many of you right now, seven months into the year, have forgot about all those goals. Your goal to lose weight, off track. Your goal to get out of debt, off track. Your goal to eat better, off track. Your goal to find better relationships, off track. All of your goals, off track. Why? Well, Napoleon Hill says because you don't have determination. Goals and determination go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If you're determined... You're just determined on going in one direction, but you'll get distracted and you'll just keep moving. You're determined, but for what reason? What are you determined to accomplish? Where's your focus? Where's your mind going? Where's all the energy going? No idea. You're just digging a hole and you have no idea where you're going to go. Right? You kind of just get into a car and drive somewhere on vacation. Now you have a destination, so pick that destination. Right? If I want to go from Los Angeles to New York City... I got my destination. I know where I'm going and I'm determined to get there. Perfect. Your goal though, what are your goals? Are your goals big enough to inspire you? Are they big enough to unlock passion in you? Are they worth being determined for? What are your goals? Far too many of you don't have goals. So pick your damn goal. What is it? Now I'm a big fan for having really, really big goals. But you know what though? If you have a really big goal... Sometimes you can be very determined and it could screw you over, actually. And this is something Napoleon Hill says, and I truly love this, and that, number one, you want to write down your goals. Write down your goals and attach deadlines to them. Right? You have a start date and an end date for your goal. So if I want to lose 20 pounds, January 1st, 2018, I set my goal to lose X amount of weight by July 1st, 2018. Right? That's your goal. Set your goal, 
pick a timeline. Now, the next thing here, though, is that if you have a particularly challenging goal, this is what I love when Hill says this. He says, if you have a particularly challenging goal, you need to break your goal down into smaller chunks, smaller goals so that you can achieve in the next week or in the next month to build up to that end goal. You build momentum. You start to realize small steps, small baby steps to success. So if I have a seven-month goal in January 1st, 2018, my end date's July 1st, 2018, I might say after my first month, my first goal would be going to the gym 20 days out of 30. Hey, I succeeded in my first goal. Awesome, I made progress. Let's go to my next one. Maybe your next one is to lose five pounds by month two. Awesome, I achieved that one. That one's within my reach. The next one, to not eat any fatty foods or any sugary foods or any processed foods for, um, for, for, I don't know, three months. Perfect. I just achieved my next goal. Whatever it is your goal is. I don't know whatever your goal is, but it's to break that goal down into smaller goals to make it more reasonable. Now, for example, if your dream was to learn how to speak Italian, that's a huge goal, right? If you want to learn to speak Italian, it's not going to take you a couple months. It's going to take you a long time. It might even take you a couple of years. So because you have a very big goal, you want to divide that goal into smaller goals, for example, like ordering your first beer or ordering your first your first meal, uh, your first meal successfully without reading, you know, anything off of a translator. That might be your first goal, right? Your next goal might be having a very simple conversation with a stranger. How are you? How's your day? Have a good day. That might be a second goal of yours. Break down your big goal into smaller goals. Now, I hope your goals excite you. I hope they get you up in the morning and you can't wait to get started on them because that's what a goal should do. And if it's not, then choose a new goal for yourself because a goal, like I said earlier, your goal should be your best antidepressant. It should keep you in a constant state of excitement, of passion, of trying to go after achieving what you're trying to do. And I have multiple goals. And Napoleon Hill says you want to focus your goals. You don't want to have a million different goals and obviously you can't have a million goals, but you don't want to have, you know, 10 to 20 goals. You want to have a handful of goals. So usually I have a health-related goal. I have a finance-related goal. I have a relationship-related goal. That's pretty much it. I keep it pretty simple. So don't try to set too many goals for yourself. Keep yourself simple. Maybe have two or three goals you have and strive to achieve them. Have a start date. Have an end date. Have many goals along the way if you have a very big goal. And of course, every single day, remind yourself of it. Print it up on an 8.5 by 11. Put it in your bathroom. Put it in your wallet. Put it in your purse. Put it in your car. Put it at the office and remind yourself of it every single day what your goal is. And don't forget it. What a powerful takeaway for you to ponder on as you kick off 2019. You might not have your goals yet, but it's never too late to start. Reset your goals. Restart your goals. doesn't matter if it's January, February, March, April. Just it doesn't matter what day it is. You don't have to wait for January 1st to start your new goals. If you're listening to this and it's July, start your new goal today. There's no reason you have to wait for a temporal landmark like January to start things off. All right, now we crack into the top three golden nuggets from 2018. And our number three golden nugget comes from my main man, Jeffrey Gittimer, where we had Jeffrey on the show, episode 134, talking about the little gold book of Yes Attitude. I love this book, and (laughs) I love Jeffrey. Him and I, we get along so well. We have such great chemistry. And in this golden nugget in particular, we talked about something that I absolutely loved, getting insight 
into your inside attitude. It is the way you dedicate yourself to the way you think. If you think it's good, it's good. If you think it's bad, it's bad. If you think it's cold and you're going to have a great day, then you're going to have a great day. If you think it's cold and you're not going to have a great day, then you are not going to have a great day. Attitude, the way you dedicate yourself to the way you think, creates your intentions. You may have a goal, but if your intentions aren't there to achieve the goal, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Your boss says you need to sell five things today, and you're going, I don't really like my boss. I don't really like my company. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you love what you do and you're dedicated to self-success, you're going to get out there and at least give it your best shot. Mm -hmm. So I ask people all the time, how positive is your attitude? And they say, oh, Jeffrey, it's really positive. I say, oh, great. Let's take this little test. And the, the, the test that's in the book, it's, it's amazingly accurate. And most people don't have a positive attitude. In fact, it's not even close mm -hmm. because they don't dedicate themselves to it from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, I have an, one of the things that I have in my family is a nine-year-old daughter, even though I probably shouldn't, but I do. Hmm. And sometimes she'll say, Daddy, I can't sleep. And I'll say, well, what are you thinking about? And I explained to her that if she changes her thoughts to the most fun things that have ever happened to her in her life, that she'll be asleep in five minutes. Hmm. And it happens. And it works. Such a shame. I'll tell you something. Cut the crap is one of the keys to attitude. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it definitely is, man. And it's one of those things I notice a lot of the times where you get a new salesperson that comes into an organization. And they come in. They're full of piss and vinegar. They're excited. The organization's excited about them coming in. But then what happens? Time happens. The longer they stay in the organization, the longer they get beat down by, you know, whether it's a certain manager or, you know, they missed their goal and now they're bitter by it or politics or what have you. And then as I train these people from day one to, you know, maybe the time before they want to leave, what happens? Did their skills change? Nah, man, their skills stay the same. In fact, they sometimes, probably got no, better. Sometimes their skills improve, yeah. but their cynicism takes over. There it is. There it is right there. Their cynicism takes over and their attitude changes. And when their attitude changes toward the job, they just have this like, I don't, don't, don't give a damn anymore. I don't care. Or, or, and I think this is equally as important, they begin to self-predict a negative outcome. Yes. Yes. Very they, true. They, they know what won't happen and they, they fail to focus on what could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it happens so often, man, so often. So again, Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, if you're one of those people out there where you're in a job right now, you're selling and you know you have this very cynical way of looking at your boss, at your organization, at the situation, that is a result of your attitude. That is something that you control, right? You are essentially giving in to you know, your own emotions. And yep. a lot of times you might say, hey, I just got to get out of here. This is just not right for me. Listen, I guarantee you, if you leave this organization, you go somewhere else, in a couple of years, you're going to feel the exact same way. I love that takeaway. Love that takeaway. Especially with all this goal setting stuff we're talking about. You might have a goal this year of making an extra, I don't know, $10,000 this year. And you might want that. And you might really, really want that. But the problem is, you also don't want to work. Ah, you'd rather watch Netflix. I ah, would like to get a little bit more sleep. Well, I'm telling you, if you have those thoughts that, you know, I would rather do this than that, then you're probably not going to achieve your success. And so this one in particular that Jeffrey was sharing with us is all about self-awareness and understanding the thoughts that you have inside that might be in conflict with some of your goals. It's something really important that you have to keep in mind as you set your goals for 2019. But man, what a pleasure having Jeffrey on the show twice in 2018. I absolutely love talking to Jeffrey. And you know what? I got to get the man back on the show again in 2019 because 
I just have so much fun with him. All right, so now we're down to the final two. The best two golden nuggets, in my opinion, from 2018. And this one comes from episode 126 with my friend Akash Korea, where we're talking about his book, The Seven Things Resilient People Do Differently. Now, obviously, this book's all about building mental resilience. And the importance of building resilience is not looking at your emotions, the negative emotions such as sadness and anxiety, and trying to ignore them, trying to shove them down so you don't feel them. You have to respect your emotions. You have to understand what you're feeling and understand why you're feeling that. Tony Robbins says this all the time. He says you you can't just look outside your window, see all the weeds on your grass, close your eyes and say, there are no weeds, there are no weeds, there are no weeds. Because when you open up your eyes, there's still weeds there. You got to go outside and you got to pull those sons of guns out. So this one in particular is really important because I think people misunderstand what resilience is all about. Resilience is not covering up your negative emotions. It's about respecting them. So this is very interesting. One of the tendencies that I had was because I want to be resilient, I felt that initially I just had to be happy all the time, Mm. that I had to be upbeat all the time, that I had to be positive all the time. But then there are always situations in life, maybe a big deal fell through or your spouse did something that really just uh, went against your grain and caused you to be disappointed Mm -hmm. or something happened at work that just gets you down. So the first foundational key that I found in terms of the way that emotionally resilient people deal with this is that instead of pretending that it's not there and acting upbeat and positive the whole time, they acknowledge it. And there's some very interesting scientific data around this. They took about a group of 100 participants and these participants were told to choose an unwanted thought or a memory or an image that just wasn't very positive and they'd rather not have. Hmm. And they were told to suppress that negative thought for about five minutes. So it was go ahead, suppress this feeling, suppress this thought, suppress this image that you don't want. Then these participants go off and they go to sleep. Now, do you know what happens, Ryan? Something very Hmm. interesting happens. Uh, When these participants go to sleep, the ones who had to suppress these thoughts actually dreamt about it (sighs) Uh, more than those who didn't suppress the thought. So the more you suppress a certain feeling, a certain memory, the more likely it is to pop up. Um, A very good example of this is if I said to you, don't think of an elephant. (laughs) Thinking of the elephant right now. (laughs) Exactly. In order for you to not think of it, your your brain has to actually take that word and take what it means and transfer it and then create the negative of it. So Hmm. the first thing is whatever you're feeling at that moment in time, just acknowledge it. Um, The second part of this is you then need to realize who's responsible for this. Hmm. Am I responsible for this emotion or is the world responsible for this emotion? And this is one of the things that's kind of hard to do. And I struggle with this and I come from this, not from the perspective of an expert, but from the perspective of a student Hmm. who's still learning these things and trying to implement them in my life. So the second thing is, who's responsible for this emotion that you're feeling? If you're feeling disappointed, is it the world that has made you disappointed or is it you creating a certain movie in your head that's causing you to be disappointed? Hmm. If you're feeling angry, did the world hand you an object that is angry, that is causing you to be angry, or did you within yourself imagine something that is now creating the anger within you. 
And when I looked at it, I realized that emotion is not a tangible thing that the world gives you. Emotion is something that we, through our thoughts, through the way that we interpret certain things, through the way that we focus on something, it's something that we create internally. Mm. So accept what you're feeling, whatever that may be, and then take responsibility for it, that you are the one who has created this emotion, and it is now up to you to change that emotion should you so desire. So Viktor Frankl was uh, part of... Uh, so he was in Germany, and in about September 1942, if I remember correctly, he was transported to a Nazi concentration camp. And when he was taken into this concentration camp, they separated him from his family. They took all of his belongings, his clothes, his wedding ring. And he'd been working on this one book that was his life's work. And they took that book and they tore it up in front of him just because they could. And he was treated to absolutely inhumane circumstances. Uh, the Nazi concentration camps were uh, probably the most difficult, brutal, emotional uh, torture that a person can go through. Mm. And I visited Auschwitz uh, when I was mm. in Poland. And just being in that space, just being in that concentration camp, you could feel the heaviness oh. uh, and you could feel the sadness in that place. So... The reason that I bring up Viktor Frankl in the book is because Viktor Frankl wrote a book after he got out of the concentration camp. And the book is called Man's Search for Meaning, one of the most powerful wow. books that I have ever read. Wow. It completely changed the way that I look at life. And there's one particular quote that I love that highlights this first habit, and that is Viktor Frankl says this, the one thing that you can't take away from me is the way that I choose to respond to what you do to me. Wow. The last one of freedoms is one's attitude in any given situation. Oh. The last one, the last one's freedom is choose one's attitude in any given circumstance. Mm. So he's in this place where they've taken everything away from him. And he says that the one thing that you can't take away from me is the way that I choose to feel about this and my attitude towards this. As we all strive to build resilience, we need to remember that resilient people, they don't just ignore their emotions. They don't cover it up. Resilient people, they acknowledge their emotions, they accept responsibility for them, and they learn to interpret the positive intentions of their emotions. This was such an important takeaway, and I love the fact that Akash and I could dig deeper into different aspects of resilience so you can understand what resilience is truly about. But as we continue on this show, the Cut the Crap show in 2019, I'm going to continue to focus even more on resilience. And that show that I said I was launching pretty soon is coming up real quick. And it's all focused on building resilience because that to me is one of the most important things that we could be focusing on in our world. And the most important thing you could teach your kids, your friends, your family, your coworkers, how to be more resilient. And this whole idea of resilience, a big piece to it is the story that you tell yourself. And as we talk about story, that actually breaks us into the top golden nugget for 2018, where we talk to Emily Esfahani-Smith on episode 103 about her book, The Power of Meaning. This idea of the power of meaning, it's all about trying to find meaning in life. How do you find meaning in life? If you're asking yourself that question, then go back and listen to the episode. But one of the ways which I found was the most important is the story that you tell yourself. So storytelling. So storytelling was one of the more interesting 
of the pillars that I, as I was doing the research. And, you know, when I'm talking about storytelling, I'm not necessarily talking about the stories that were, that, that immediately come to mind, like, you know, the movies that we see, the television shows, the novels, um, the fairy tales that we read, read our children. I'm talking about the story that you tell yourself about who you are, this ongoing narrative in an individual's mind about who they are, what's going on with their lives, why certain things happen, um, why they are the way they are. And I think that we don't always realize that we have that narrative going on in our minds and that, A, it's, it's a source of meaning because you're taking these disparate strands of your life and your experiences and you're weaving them together into something coherent. So it's a source of meaning in that way. But it's also a source of meaning in in that telling in that in this, when you tell that story, you are finding meaning in it, and it could be a positive meaning or negative meaning. So you know, let's say you are you're going through a divorce, and you tell this story of um, you know I you know I'm I, I'm a failure I, I can't do anything right I, I I'm a failure in my work I, I failed in this marriage and the reason my husband is leaving me is because I just that never had my act together and couldn't you know deliver in, in our marriage and these other aspects of our lives so you know and 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 maybe those things are true um, that you you know you did lose your job you did whatever and you 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 do feel like a failure in these different aspects of your life. But you can also choose to tell the story in a different way just by incorporating different material into the story, material that's also true, um, such as, okay, like, I, I failed, I failed in my job, I failed in my marriage, my husband doesn't love me anymore, um, but this, you know, and I'm at the lowest point in my life that I've ever been, but I'm also going to use this as an opportunity to reflect on how I want to move forward and to figure out what what direction my life is going to take and how I can grow in the wake of this. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's the same set of facts, but it's a slightly different spin on it. And and obviously that the interpretation that you're bringing has to be true to who you are and to your circumstances. But, um, you know, we can bring different interpretations to the same set of circumstances and it's important to realize that some of the interpretations that we bring can hold us back, and some of them can help us move forward. So, you know, Dan McAdams is a researcher at Northwestern University who studies these stories that we tell ourselves, and he's found that people who tell what he calls contamination stories or stories that move from um, good things happening, so my life was really great, and then I got divorced and it, it became horrible, that those people tend to be more anxious and depressed and, and believe that their lives are not as meaningful. Whereas people who tell what he calls redemptive stories, stories that move from bad to good, uh, tend to believe that their lives are more meaningful. So a story like, I got a divorce, it was horrible, reached my lowest point, but it helped me grow and you know now I, I discover things about myself and my strengths that I never knew I had. So in my book, I tell a story of this of this man named Emeka Naka, who um, who lives uh, in Oklahoma. And you know, several years ago, he was a young, strong, semi-professional football player. And you know, he he had kind of he'd kind of been a little bit of uh, you know distracted when he was younger, got into a little bit of trouble, and. 
Um, finally, when we started playing football, he said, you know, things kind of started coming together for me. I, I finally, there was something that I was good at, that I could feel good about myself doing. I was one of the, you know, popular guys. It was great. And, but, but during one of his games, he, he became injured um, and paralyzed uh, during a hit that he took. And so that was a turning point in his life. And we know afterwards, as he was laying in the hospital, he started telling himself the following story. He said, you know, before my injury, my life was really great. I, you know, I was doing something I was good at. I was, as I said, the life of the party. People liked me. I was popular. I had my whole future in front of me to do whatever I want to. But now I can't walk, and I'm, I'm never going to do the things I want to do. Hmm. Who am I going to marry? Who's going to want to marry me? My life is basically over. Wow. And so that was the story that he was telling himself. And, you know, if you think back to what I said earlier, that's, that's your classic contamination hmm. story. That's right. Story of good thing happening, then something happens, and then, and then a bad thing uh, follows. So that was the story that Emika told himself, and it made him, you know, of course, feel much more depressed about his circumstances. But over time, and he had a lot of time because he was just kind of, you know, sitting there recovering, he started reflecting and digging deeper and telling himself a new story. Mm. And that new story went like this. You know, he said, yeah, you know, when I was playing football, I was the life of the party. I was popular, but I was also a pretty selfish guy. Hmm. I didn't really care about other people. I only cared about myself. And now that I'm injured, I realized how selfish I was being, how superficial my life was. And I want to be a better man than the person that I was before. Hmm. And so... And not, and not only do I want to be a better man, but I can be a better man because I can change how I live my life. Wow. And that slight edit to his story ended, ended up indeed kind of changing his life. He started mentoring kids in his community, and he eventually went to, got, got his college degree in counseling so he could continue helping other people. So I think that's a really powerful example. And you don't have to have something crazy and traumatic happen to you like Emika had in order to, to shift your perspective. But I think it's a good example of how that shift can happen just by reflecting on your life in a thoughtful, deliberate way. What story are you telling yourself in life? Is your story one of disappointment where all things just always happen to me? Bad things just, they seem to be attracted to me. Or I'm always that type of person where I get up high enough but then all of a sudden I just come crashing down. I'm somebody who can never grab that golden ring. Or are you telling yourself an empowering story, such as this is my comeback story? Yes, I've had a lot of failures in my life, but I'm telling you my comeback story is happening right now. What story are you telling yourself? This is so powerful because it's, it's not about your big life story either. It's about the little stories, the little stuff that happens to you. Of course, I have to finish off the podcast talking about my philosophies, but... It's not a setback, it's a set up. What's the story you're telling yourself with that philosophy? Right, when I told you guys that I got hit by a car, my, my, my car got hit, I was like, oh, this is terrible, it's awful, blah, 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 blah. What story did I tell myself? I said, this wasn't a bad thing, this was a good thing. It was a positive thing, because it's going to keep me alive, it's going to make me more aware, and it's going to help me avoid other, other accidents. I focused on gratitude. You know what, I'm grateful that this is so small in the grand scheme of things. 
And you, the story that I told on a daily basis, on a micro basis, is different from the macro story of your life. But every day we have to tell ourselves a story. You might be working with somebody in the office that you just, you're on break right now and you don't want to go back to the office because this person stresses you out. What story are you telling yourself about that person? Is that person a teacher that's going to make you stronger? Are they going to make you more resilient? Are they going to thicken your skin? Or is that person someone that's going to crush you, ruin your life, ruin your family? What story are you telling yourself? I can't get out of this job. This job is terrible, but you know what? There's nothing better for me out there. There's nothing for me. I better just stay in this deadbeat job, depressed, sad, hating the nine to five, another day, another dollar. Or listen, my comeback story is being written right now. And right now in my story, I'm the main character in this story. And right now my main character isn't happy, but you know what? I'm going to start right now with setting a brand new goal. In 2019, I'm building my comeback story, baby. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tough, but God damn it, I'm going to do it. What story are you telling yourself? Don't forget that you are the main actor in your story. But far too many of us are playing the supporting cast in our own lives, in our own stories. It's time for you to start stepping up. In 2019, I want you to step up. I want you to be more resilient. I want you to set goals. I want you to accomplish them. I want you to focus on productivity, not perfection. I want you to focus on having a positive mental attitude. I want you to quiet the lizard brain. Learn to dance with it. And I just want you to make progress in 2019. Because man, our days, our months, the years pass us by so damn fast. Set aside some time every single day to focus on your six box to-do list. Focus on those most important things and just move forward on them. Because I tell you, next year at this time, when we're looking back on the top golden nuggets for 2019, if you take these top golden nuggets and you put them into practice in 2019, when we're looking back, you're going to say, man, I'm so glad I did that because my life is so much better today than it was a year ago. That's my hope. And that's my goal for all of you who are listening to this. So my friends, it's been a true pleasure having you with me all year. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for being such fans of the show. Thank you for reaching out to me. I feel so connected to so many of you. I've had so many phone conversations, emails, text exchanges. And I just can't wait to see what 2019 brings to us. My friends, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for being on this journey with me. I'm going to continue bringing this energy, enthusiasm, content to you because I know that you need certain pieces of content in your life. And my whole goal is just to plant seeds. I know that not every book is going to be applicable to you, but you know what? There might be one golden nugget in 2018 or in 2019 or 17, 16, doesn't matter. There might be one golden nugget that changes your life. And if it does, then I did my job, baby. I did my job. So as we turn the last page on 2018 and we close the chapter on the Cut the Crap Show for 2018, I want to wish you all the best of luck for 2019. I hope you all are very successful. I hope you're aggressive. I hope you're intense. I hope you're positive. I hope you're more resilient in 2019. And as you make your way on 2019, achieving your goals, you know, you know that Ryan's going to be standing there with you, walking there with you the entire step of the way. All you got to do is connect with me, reach out to me, put me in your ears every week. And I just, it's such an honor being on, uh, on your own journey with you and being a part of that. So my friends, 
Again, it's been such a pleasure in 2018. Have yourselves a great New Year's celebration. And we'll catch you back next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here on this show. Just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. I love you all. 